This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss the most recent design diary from Monty Cook Games on expressions of magic in Invisible Sun. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss the regular series of design diaries from Monty Cook Games about the development of, of the Invisible Sun game. Uh, and this time, uh, we are talking about Design Diary... 13. <laughs> ...on uh, Expressions of Magic. Uh, this will overlap somewhat with some of the topics we've discussed before, but it's a nice point to talk about the importance of magic to the setting and one of the distinctive elements of the setting of Invisible Sun as one in which magic is pervasive. It is ubiquitous. It is not something held by a particular subset of player characters or colleges of wizardry or whatever. It is in every part of, of the setting, and that has implications for the design of the game and players' relationships with magic. The design diary starts with a discussion of sort of classical approaches to magic as expressed as spells. And so in uh, Dungeons and Dragons and in most editions uh, and a lot of other games, uh, the approach to spells is what uh, the design diary calls zaps. These are discrete actions with a specific effect. And so a classical example might be something like Magic Missile, where that's if you cast that spell, which is a magical action, uh, the magic of the spell invokes these little missiles. It shoots them for a very specific effect of doing damage, uh, and then it's over, and you're done. And it has, in that case, almost literally zapped an opponent. Uh, and, and this mentality towards magic is repeated really throughout uh, Vancean spellcasting, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But in most systems of magic, where magics are uh, uh, thought of in terms of these discrete spell effects, um, it even applies. I have a question here um, because when I was reading through this, like the he gives an example of uh, Mickey Mouse putting his the sorcerer's hat on, and then like shooting lightning bolts to make his magic work, not lightning bolts, but you know, there was something to animate uh, to indicate that he was casting magic, casting spells. Um, so when you say these discrete effects, it's, is it more than just this manifestation of power? Uh, like what, what really entails a zap? What's, what's the whole package? Yeah. And I think he's refer uh, referring to the lightning bolt effects, uh, as a zap, because we don't really think of that as electricity. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't think it's necessarily like the visual manifestation of electricity or of an emanating force from a magic user or something like that. But what's important to distinguish a zap from these other types of magic we will talk about are the, the nature of this of these spells as being discrete actions. So you know exactly when one starts and when one ends. Um, and they have a well-defined specific effect. So, so Magic Missile will do some amount of, you, you let, you, lets you roll a bunch of D4s and do that much damage. Mm -hmm. 
uh, even in cases that seem like they're much more ambiguous, like a charm person sort of spell, uh, it still has a very discreet effect. It says it's going to last exactly this long. It allows you to tell people either it improves your social skills in dealing with a person, or it lets you tell them what to do within some bounds. Uh, and it has these has relatively specific effects uh, that are defined in the description of that spell. And so I think those would still count as zaps, even if they don't have like, you know, emanating forces from fingertips uh, or wands or whatever. Uh, what's important is that they're narrowly described or circumscribed narratively uh, as something that could, could just as easily be reproduced in the narrative as say a ray gun. So maybe instead of casting magic missile, you say, I shoot my ray gun. Mechanically, it would look very much alike. Uh, or instead of casting Charm Person, I use my um, my pocket watch to hypnotize someone using my hypnotism skill. That would still have that sort of, of discrete effect. In Invisible Sun, magic is more pervasive and has many more forms. And so uh, he wants to emphasize how magic can take various forms that might not be obvious if we think only in terms of these zap-like spells. Uh, of course, those sorts of spells are present. In fact, they're called spells. Uh, uh, and uh, Vance's in particular will specialize in collecting uh, these spells, casting them, and, uh, and will have that zap sort of spell as a central component of what their character does. But those aren't the only ways that magic is expressed. And so he wants to talk about some that he's mentioned before, uh, like incantations, which are one-shot spells, kind of like ciphers in the cipher system, where yeah. once you use them, they're gone. But they have cool one-time effects. And you're intended to rotate through these relatively quickly. And we've touched on those a little bit before. I'm not sure how they've changed for the upcoming release. Right. And we don't have a lot of examples of that. I think we're gonna have to wait for the release to see a lot of examples because everything else is still under uh, NDA. They did post some stuff to Twitter. So maybe I'll dig, dig up some of those photos and see if I can find them. Oh, yeah, we might be able to talk about maybe uh, pull a couple of those to talk about in future episodes. Yep. Uh, similarly, we have a discussion of, of a set of three different types of magic, minor magics, hexes and charms, which are small but persistent bonuses. Um, in uh, spells. So, so they're not quite, you know, again, they're not zaps because they aren't having a discrete beginning and ending effect that has, that is as dramatic as a magic missile or something like that, but they might make you a little more uh, persuasive or they might make it easier for you to hide in shadows or something along those, those lines. They're just little bonuses and, and they express uh, the sorts of access to magic that just about everybody would have, even without Vizlay training uh, or these sorts of natural instincts, but how everyone in the world has access to at least a little bit of magic. And often that'll be expressed through minor magics, hexes and charms. These hexes and charms, I mean, uh, what you're describing still sounds very similar to a zap though. It's a small, discrete, functional effect that could easily be repeated. Well, I think it is discrete in its effect because it has a well-defined effect, but mm -hmm. it's not discrete in time because these, these are persistent uh, okay. usually. That, that's my understanding of it. But again, we don't have a lot of examples to talk about just yet. But uh, I get the sense this is something more like a feat uh, 
in a Dungeons and Dragons, like third edition uh, Dungeons and Dragons or, or, or Pathfinder uh, or similar systems where it's a persistent characteristic of your character rather than uh, a resource that is expended uh, where it has a discrete beginning and ending. I guess the bonus would have a beginning, but you would, wouldn't expect it to necessarily have an ending. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking that uh, you were describing fortes for a second, but these are this is not a forte. No, no, these are uh, these are smaller sort of bonuses. But fortes, we can talk is is an interesting topic to bring up here and in the design diary because uh, the design diary emphasizes that magic is so pervasive that it is in some ways in every part of of what characters do, mm-hmm. and so when character sentences are written out and you, you decide what your forte is, your forte may indicate a magic like effect. It's not necessarily a spell that you, you know, cast and forget an Avancian system or that has that sort but, but it, it, instead your forte represents something that your character does. That's unique to them. Like travels with spirits or uh, fuses nightmare to fist. Something like that. Trying to think of what else has been talked about in the Raven wants what you have. Uh, is one of the characters that like breaks into pieces or shatters into pieces or something? That might be. There's another one that's uh, cages their enemies. Yes, and so well, there's lots of examples out there on, between the the streams that are they're starting up uh, and design diaries and other convers- uh, Twitter uh, 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 postings and things like that. I guess we call them tweets. Uh, so there's a lot of examples out there now of fortes, but you can think of these fortes, though they're not spells within the Invisible Sun game system. Mm-hmm. Um, they are magical effects in the sense that they are supernatural. They're things that not everyone can do. They're supposed to be things that are fairly uniquely yours. Yes, and, and they're supernatural in, the, in that they're, they're unique to you. They break the rules of what we think of as physics, um, but they're not spells per se but they're they're magical effects that you have access to yeah and and these feel very different from uh what we were first talking about with zaps because these are just magical abilities that you can access and just sort of use like it it, it defines what their function is but hey it's it's your forte you're just good at doing this yeah, and it this is sort of a meta game aspect of the forte. Um, it's re- strongly recommended. I'm pretty sure, as it is within the cipher system, that uh, like a focus, your forte should be unique in your party. There shouldn't be two people in your party with the same forte. Mm-hmm. Whereas spells could you could feasibly have multiple people in the party with a similar spell, but you wouldn't have that side of overlap with fortes. But this illustrates that you, you, again, you have to change the way you think about magic in that magic is so pervasive that other parts of the character that are not spells may still be magical in some sense, though this raises an important question. I'll have to get back to when we talk about uh, sortilege. Uh, and how swordledge can affect even mundane sorts of tasks. But I want to get back to that when we get back to sort, uh, how fortes and swordledge may be connected. Swordledge is, I think, one of my favorite ways that magic is expressed in this game. Let's just go straight there, and we can circle back on the other things later. So swordledge, as we've talked about before, is the use... It's a character stat. It's part of you, you, something you invest points in in character creation and can grow through your character's growth. Uh, it is the ability of a character to employ raw magic to aid them in whatever it is that they're doing. 
Uh, it is represented mechanically as an additional die or possibly more with advanced characters that you can roll. And if you succeed with either, you know, either of these uh, dice, then you succeed in your task. Uh, but there's a risk because if you give a zero on your magical die, uh, you can have a uh, magical surge, flux, magical flux. Magic flux. Yeah, and so we, you know, these these are things that have come up before, though we don't have a lot of detail on them um, out in uh, in in these the posts just yet. Uh, but what's fun about this, and we use this a lot in our playtest, is that sort of logic can be used on any task. So you could say, I really want to sneak, get away from this enemy who's who's uh, tracking me down the alley. So not only am I going to hide using, say, movement or whatever uh, skill might be appropriate in that circumstance, I'm also going to spend Sortilage to marshal uh, magical forces around me to assist me in this task. And it's completely open. The player and the GM can kind of negotiate uh, who is going to decide how is it that magic assists in this particular task. Do you draw upon raw magic to shape the shadows around you uh, to create sort of a camouflage effect? Do you uh, summon a gust of wind through a magical force that speeds your uh, retreat down this alley? You, that's up to you to define. It's just you are open to define a, a, a effect of raw magic that's assisting you in your task. Yeah, and that's that's the part of Sortilage that I really like. It's It's wide open. It's not an overpowered effect. It's really just, I want to do better at this task that's in front of me. So I'm going to spend some sortilage and get an extra die and hopefully have a better chance of succeeding. Yeah. Because it's an extra die on a task you would otherwise be attempting. It, it creates sort of a ceiling for it that avoids some of the potential dangers of completely open magical systems where you might say, well, okay, I, I can do anything. Well, I'm going to use whatever my magical ability is to decapitate my opponent. Let me roll. Like, well, uh, yeah, well. <laughs> well, first of all, decapitating someone may not have the same effect in Invisible Sun, uh, where you have body shops and this, this, um, you know, this body may not be all that important to somebody, but, Instead, you have to say, well, what is it you're trying to do? Because all Swordledge can do is help you do what you're trying to do through mundane means. So are you swinging your sword at someone as if you attempt to decapitate them? Fine. You are rolling your at attack as you normally would uh, using your combat and adding a Swordledge die. So it, it, it grounds this use of magic uh, to prevent the more kind of game-breaking you know, uh, uh, possibilities for just defining magic to do anything you want it to do. But what what I wanted to what I'm still kind of curious about, and I'm wondering if it'll be answered directly or if we'll just have to define this in our own games. Uh, the design diary and previous design diaries have mentioned that there will be some tasks that require magic to succeed. And so the canonical example is you might have a magical mm -hmm. lock that even if you succeed at picking it, unless you succeed with a magical die, meaning you're employing magical force to pick this lock, you can't possibly pick the lock. There's a case where you run up against uh, some sort of task that requires multiple successes, mm -hmm. which, you know, necessitates magic. Right. So, um, well, there's, the, the, I guess that's the, the, the core question is, is, the, is multiple successes synonymous with the requirement of magic? Uh, most of the time, those will... In this game, it is, yes. Well, I, I say that because if, if you're using your forte to accomplish a task, and we think of the forte as expressing magical abilities... Could the use of a forte be a magical action that still only generates one die? 
I'm guessing that it won't be because in the Kickstarter posts and in some of the design diaries, uh, Monty has, I think, called out, hey, if if you're rolling multiple dice, then uh, magic is going to be involved. So if you're rolling one die, then I don't think there's magic. Right, but I could see it going the other direction where that one die could still be magical and one die. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could see that happening, but... Uh, if I were a betting man, <laughs> I, I would take this bet. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. But, I mean, I, I think we can agree that more than one die required implies that magic is required. But is mm-hmm. there a case where you could have only one die required, one success required, and that success still has to be magical? Um, that you could even have a situation where you could say it only requires one success, but it has to be magical. And you end up rolling or taking an action which uses a mundane die and two or three magical die. Uh, there are some abilities for players to, with with advanced characters, to get mul- be able to use multiple sortilage on a single action. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll have to find out. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out in a few weeks, I think. So uh, quickly, a couple of the other uh, elements of magic that are described in this design diary that, again, deviate from the zap uh, approach to magic are long-form magic, which we discussed at length in episode 16. These are spells uh, or magical effects. I should avoid the word word spell in this context. Magical uh, effects that are built up over a long period of time. Uh, and thus can be the the sort of thing that you cast over an entire campaign or that you're trying to disrupt, that the uh, antagonists are attempting to arrange through a ritual over a period of time uh, and don't mm-hmm. operate on our normal action scale of you know something you do in a few seconds uh, and thus are long form. But that opens up ritual sorts of magic to within its storytelling possibilities. Uh, similarly, makers are going to be investing a lot of their magic uh, and their attention to the magical forces of Invisible Sun in creating things. And that's not going to be something that happens on a, on a scale of seconds, but will be a process that they imbue over time an object with properties and they experiment with it and they imbue more properties and they layer spells on top of them. So it takes a long period of time and has a very different feel to it than you know casting a zap sort of spell. I'm really curious to see uh, what that maker matrix is going to end up being in production. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that the play test includes the, uh, a, a version of the maker's matrix and it's complex, uh, but, in, oh, it's complex. but it is intriguing. Uh, I don't, I'm pretty sure it is public based on design diaries. That's how makers work is there's a matrix of how they uh, progress kind of like a, a, a flow chart of how they operate on uh, objects and they have to use different materials in order to imbue those objects with new powers. And that's how they tend to work their magic. Uh, but again, that's a very different feel than zap sort of effects that uh, we may be used to from uh, other spellcasting systems and other other rpgs yeah and it's uh it feels a little bit different than um some of the crafting and enchanting that we've done with other game systems um just because of the complexity and all of the additional stuff that's going to go into it and the potential for a maker to actually drive a story to say, Hey, I, I want to go get this thing and we can create an interesting story out of this. Right. Uh, and, and one sort of off the, 
you know, off the it's the, the one comment in the design diary that's that's different from the rest of these uh, lists of different types of magical expressions is actually a, an NPC or a creature or a, you know a, 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 a non uh, you know, a non vislay that is described uh, from the setting called a, a zillet maybe <laughs> however we yeah, however good. we say that uh, a, a zillet is a, a, a non vislay who's really good at one thing. And that one thing is an expression of magic, typically. But they aren't typical spell casters in that they have a selection of spells that they're choosing from. Uh, instead, they are made of and kind of their core actions, what they do and what they're good at is a magical expression itself. So you can almost think of them as walking spells. Yeah, so you can have uh, like somebody in your neighborhood, uh, Mr. Orkin, who's really good at just like destroying insects. <laughs> um, that's dangerously close to zapping, but a very different term form of zapping. <laughs> it's a well, passive kind um, of zapping. I think the example they had were exercising spirits. Um, and I don't know, is there something like a chef who's really good at making delicious food? That seems like a, a, a useful, uh, zealot sort of, of skill. Um, especially if you, if mm-hmm. in making the food, it's, you almost, ma- you magically conjure the food. Uh, or you transform things into food, uh, but that, but they, again, they don't have a suite of spells that they cast, and they aren't deciding in each round what which of their spells they're casting or things like that. It's just they're good at one thing, so they're sort of a walking representation of a particular manifestation of magic. So, if you could transform things into food, would your business be like, hey, if you bring something in, we're going to make it edible? Maybe it's like ah, uh, I I need to get rid of this printer. Might as well eat it. Uh, Just don't feel like recycling today. <laughs> that, that might be a very green way to deal with, because uh, uh, we don't have a, a description of how waste removal works in Saturine. Oh, um, I'm sure there are zillets that are, you know, on top of that. <laughs> yeah. In uh, probably the least watched uh, actual play, it's going to be a group of zillets that just run around and, and find uh, uh, scraps from the war and, uh, and, and other rubble and just reduce it to muffins um, and cupcakes. <laughs> that might not be the least watched actual play. That could be, but it, it'd be close to the least watched actual play. Uh, it would have the best fan art. I mean, the first episode would be interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, we're we're wandering. Um, let's talk a little bit. I like to talk a little bit about my experience with the, with the play test, uh, and uh, basically confirm uh, what the design diary says. Not that they necessarily re- require confirmation, but you might like to hear that this isn't just a sales pitch. Um, in in our play test, I can I can confirm that uh, spells were not. Uh, a big deal <laughs> uh, consistently for us in the play test. Frequently, the PCs forgot they had spells. Uh, what, what kind of spells were they forgetting? Well, in some cases, they forgot they had spells at all. One of your PCs, like what was one of the spells they may have had at their disposal that they just totally forgot about? Um, I, off the top of my head, uh, they were used so rarely, it's hard for me to remember. Uh, oh I, I know that now an example of a spell that might have what we, would be equivalent of sort of a haste spell that allows uh, fast movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in action mode so they can kind of zip around a conflict and move rapidly from place to place. Uh, but uh, we didn't have a Vance and we didn't have a Maker, so that's probably less relevant to this discussion. Uh, Vances are probably going to be the uh, the players that have the most reliance on spells. But mm-hmm. all 
all of the uh, of the Vizlay can cast spells, and they all selected spells, but they didn't necessarily focus on them very much. And even when they advanced their characters, uh, I'd often I'd remind them a couple times that you know you could spend your acumen on spells. They go, oh, let me go shop for those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and, and over time, uh, they they started to, we started using them a little more often. Uh, but mm-hmm. even before we were using spells as often as it, we aren't using that often, but as often as we do now, uh, there was a lot of magic in the game. It's just that the magic didn't express itself exclusively through spells. We magic was expressing itself through uh, how uh, through even. Uh, skill sorts of actions, forte actions, uh, and the use of Sortilage. I would say we use Sortilage more than we cast spells uh, in our playtest if we took you know the whole 20 sessions or so. Uh, and then with that Sortilage, that's when you were pulling in descriptions of how that magic is working? Yes. And so if they were trying to break down a barrier, say, okay, well, you can use, you can draw upon raw magical forces to help you overcome this crystalline barrier. What does that look like? How does that work? And just tell me about it and narrate how you're drawing on raw magical forces. Uh, and that that worked really well to bring magic into the world. And, and we also, I also made sure that the world itself was just sort of dripping with magic. So everywhere they turned, there were th- elements of the world and the setting that could not exist in our world uh, that, that were inherently supernatural. So that even if they were doing mundane things like taking, you know, dodging attacks or swinging their swords or whatever, they were doing so in a magical environment in a magical context. Uh, so magic was there, even if they were, again, weren't casting spells. Oh, that's cool. And, and you can use examples of this from the action or from the uh, development mode that we've used uh, on the podcast where uh, there isn't, a specific list of spells that Iotona has. We haven't written that out. <laughs> no, we haven't. We uh, very specifically didn't. No, no, no. Uh, it, well, it's in, in develop mode, you, you don't really have the same resource uh, game that you have with the full Invisible Sun game. You just have the Sooth deck. Uh, and so you're abstracting a little bit. But part of that abstraction represents in the game itself, you uh, Magic has a variety of expressions. So we just narrated that, oh, well, Iotono is going to use his magical sight to uh, see how the forces kind of ley lines were representing the influence of, uh, was it the red in the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the, the magical floating bat balloon. And these are magical properties. Uh, these are mag- expressions of magic in the world that didn't require having discrete spells. And so lots of things can be turned into magical expressions without having to worrying about flipping through the rule book to find out whether this is a level three or a level two spell. Now, if you were doing uh, something like, uh, you know, looking for the, the power convergence of the red sun in your neighborhood, if you're doing that in uh, not development mode, but um, I'm trying to think of the thing that's not action mode. Um, story mode, I think. Mode? Story it's either mode? narrative or story, something like that. Yeah. So if, if you were doing that in that sort of setting, I mean, would you just be looking at saying as the GM, like this is going to be this sort of check and it's going to require magic. So your, your player would spend sortilage or, you know, find their forte skill or a spell that would work in place of that. That's how I would handle it. I, I, I would be pretty permissive uh, mm-hmm. just because the game that I would want to run would be very uh, magically based. And so I might even allow just a, if I thought that this effect 
if, if what they were looking for would be something that someone who understood magic would be able to see, but with their mundane eyes, like, oh, well, wait a second, uh, this arrangement is associated with a particular school of magic. So like this is the feng shui of this neighborhood uh, tells me something about the flow of magic. Uh, but they could see the buildings and everything arrangement with their with mundane eyes. That might just be perception without any other mm-hmm. sort of necessity. But if they were saying, "Well, I really want to see the literal flow of magic through this neighborhood," then I might ask them to that, that they have some sort of magical effect that explains how they would have this sight that is uh, not, that is beyond their mundane sensory organs. And so that might be sortilage. That might be a a, a forte uh, ability if the forte ability added a magical die because mm-hmm. uh, if it just adds a bonus then there's not there's still no magic necessarily operating there um though i might fudge that a little bit because again if they have a hex or a forte ability that gives them a bonus I'm like well magic's in play here so maybe i let that let that happen uh, it, it should be cool to see how i'm going to work that out at the table absolutely uh is there anything else we want to touch on before we wrap this segment up uh, I think that's everything for expressions of magic. It's worth noting a couple of things about our, our schedule moving forward. Um, yeah, we'll, I was going to say, do we want to talk about this? Uh, like many of you out there, we are still sort of processing our emotional response to the news that uh, our black cubes have been delayed in their translation from the indigo into this fallen world of ours. Um, so we, yeah, you know, it's, it's coming. It, they're, they're coming. Um, and, and intellectually, I know that. Uh, I built. Yes. I had built everything up uh, expecting that sometime around now I would have this beautiful object in front of me and we would be squeeing and doing all of our little school uh, child thing reactions to this little object. But that's going to happen in May maybe or early June instead. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um that's going to change kind of, we had designed the podcast and our schedule of topics to sort of culminate (laughs) in February. Um, Now we're trying to figure out how to make that work into May. Uh, So we'll probably be having shorter discussions. Uh, We're going to be relying on the, uh, what has been announced as a series of uh, design diaries and updates coming in on the production through March and April. Yeah. Unfortunately the production updates might just be, Hey, everything is uh, going along. Here are some pictures of the boxes getting assembled. Yeah, that probably won't sustain much of a discussion, but we will have actual plays. So we have both The Woman with Hollow Eyes um, mm-hmm. and we have the Raven Wants What You Have in terms of uh, official Monty Cook Games examples of play. Um, and so there, there's some other things happening we'll be able to talk about, but we may be slowing down a little bit on with, with shorter episodes with single castings. Uh, and we'll see how how that goes over the next uh, few months. But we still, I, I think, we anticipate hitting a, a very similar release schedule, uh, but with more modest um, discussions as the as we, we wait for the the imminence of uh, the Black Cube itself. Yeah, we're we're not going to miss our shows, uh, but boy, what are we going to talk about in like two months? Uh, over the next two months, or in two months? Well, in in two months, like. Uh, we'll, we'll have design diaries and stuff, so we'll be fine. It'll be cool. Maybe we'll just have one episode where um, who knows what we're going to talk about. Well, we've still got more Swamp Thing and Doom Patrol. I bet we can find some more cool movies, too. Have we not talked about Swamp Thing? 
I don't remember talking about Swamp Thing. Maybe it was it was Sandman Doom Patrol. Yeah, yeah, we definitely didn't talk about Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. Okay, yeah, I don't know. Swamp Thing might fit if we're if I'm still trying to convince you the green can be interesting. Uh, oh, but, Swamp Thing's awesome. Yeah. yeah oh, I'm, Alan Moore Swamp Thing is super great. Yeah, I, I, I the, my, my students figured out how much of a geek I am when I went off on anatomy lesson as being the you know the basically the perfection of the single issue comic book form. Maybe that we'll we'll figure out some more, some more things we can talk about. But uh, um, we're we're in this with you guys <laughs> and gals uh, in our uh, in the audience, and we're gonna keep uh, talking about what we learn. Uh, I'm. Uh, reacting to new information as it comes out and uh, just waiting for the release of the game when we can really start digging into uh, a lot of these systems um, that we still have only vague understanding as of how they will work. Can't wait to crack one of those books and then just read it for the podcast. So in the meantime, be thinking about your what, what sort of campaigns you want you want to build as you play this game. Uh, watch the actual plays. Uh, watch for uh, announcements and design diaries and such things. There's still going to be a lot of information coming out, and we'll be here to talk about it. Sounds good. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at IncantationsPodcast.blogspot.com or email us at IncantationsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer. A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.